0: Hello again, thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy and space science show. I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley. It's great to have your company. Coming up in this particular episode, not the last one, not the next one, but this one, uh, we're looking at reflecting sunlight onto the moon. Why? Well, because they need to. That's the only reason. And the expansion of the universe, they reckon, may have slowed down after the Big Bang. Now, we've had a lot of people writing into us, emailing, messaging us, voice messaging us uh, about this particular phenomenon. So um, we're going to take a look at it. And coincidentally, we've got two questions about it today. So we'll uh, tackle those. And a real big surprise from uh, one of our regular sender-innerers. I'm not going to reveal anything. I'm just going to let this one fall as it may, and we'll do that towards the end of the show. But I think you're in for a shock, a surprise. That's all coming up on this edition of Space Nuts.
1: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9,
2: ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5,
0: 4, 3, 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Base nuts. feels good. Joining me to talk about all of that is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. You're looking well today? You are looking sprightly yourself, sir. Yeah, that's good. That's And nice yes. to- uh, you you've been to Canterbury. Uh
3: yes, I have. Uh just down actually for the day yesterday. I uh, drove down on Tuesday night and drove back last night
0: for <laughs> meeting the... Well, Helms- how long's the drive from your place to Canterborough? Three
3: hours and forty minutes. Oh, that's not bad. No, it's all right. It's fine. Uh, it's five it, hours from here. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's a different kettle of fish.
0: The uh, the the roadies, Yeah, because you, you've got roads and everything.
3: We've got roads. We've uh, got effectively, uh, you know, dual carriageway all the way. So you, you, you're not usually. Yeah, well,
0: you, you've got dual carriageway. We have to use carriages.
3: And horses. Yes. Yeah, I look, I've done that drive from Dublin to Canberra many times when I used to live in Cunabarra, and that's the way I went down. Yeah. Uh, and you've
0: got two choices, haven't you? You can go one way or the other. Yes, <laughs> and they both take just as long. They take just as long. <laughs> no shortcut. No. Yeah, I remember it well. yeah. No direct flights either. No, that's right. That's, that's a real exactly pain. <clears throat> uh, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah. Um, um, yeah. So what, what took you down to Canberra? Just a regular meeting thing? Yeah, meetings. Uh, one of which
3: was um, sort of harking back and harking forward. Uh, you remember I was in um, Vienna in February at the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. There's yes. There's scientific and technical subcommittee that was at the meeting there and doing my thing. Um, so there's been another meeting of the committee, which I wasn't at. Uh, that's this is the full committee of the on the peaceful uses of outer space, and so basically what I was getting was a report along with uh, colleagues in the Department of Industry uh, from my colleagues in the space agency who were presenting on
0: what actually happened. Uh-huh. Okay. Did you get lunch? <laughs> um, I did actually, um, because you know what that would have been. Uh
3: Pace when- piecemeal. Well, yes, it was. It was actually piecemeal. I had lunch courtesy of two of my colleagues. One of whom oh. gave me a Snickers bar, and the other gave me a Mandarin. They must all oh, sorry Paul. What a wholesome lunch. <laughs> oh, it was good stuff. Uh, the um, but it was very kind of them. It saved me kind of taking my face away from the computer and going and getting something. Yes. But that's actually, one of them bought me a coffee later, which is oh, very good. Yes, Oh, I'm glad it was a fruitful event. It uh, was fruitful, yes, and quite snickerful as well. Yes. <laughs> All
0: right, uh, let's get on with it. Uh, we've got uh, a couple of th- interesting things to talk about. These are fascinating topics. Now, we we have been watching with interest the build-up to sending human beings back to the moon, uh, the Artemis project being one of them, but I think a couple of other countries are looking at doing the same thing. Uh, one of the challenges is if you're going to put people on the moon and maybe leave them there, uh, which is the long-term goal, uh, setting up a moon base, you've got to be able to, you know, attain continuity. And that means power. And that means that there are a few uh, stumbling blocks to overcome. And this is one of them. Indeed. And it
3: really comes about because of the particular part of the moon that everybody's interested in, hmm. which is uh, in partic- the deep craters near the moon's poles. And in particular... Of those craters near the moon's south pole, because we think there's water reserves there, frozen, literally frozen water in the bottom of these craters, because they never see sunlight. Uh, now, if you're going to send astronauts to the moon to excavate this water, and by uh, using electricity, uh, dissociate the water into hydrogen and oxygen to make rocket fuel, uh, that's one of the uses for that, uh, then you need power, exactly as you've said. And, um, that, so suddenly you've got this dichotomy. You're you're on uh, a world that is bathed in sunlight uh, and no atmosphere to attenuate that sunlight. It beams down um, very strongly. Put a solar panel there, and it's you're getting electric shocks from it straight away. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the place everybody's interested in is in deep shadow, uh, and um, it is uh, you know not just the cr- the craters on the moon. Uh, the Moon's south pole, but the the regions around it, which are alternately light and dark as the Moon rotates on its axis. And so how are you going to feed solar panels with uh, sunlight to do that? And what has happened is an innovative company called Maxar uh, has got a contract with an organization called NASA, uh, w- who are, of course, sending, uh, or they, they are the, um, the agency that is responsible for the Artemis mission, uh, what Maxar has done is proposed something with the innovative name of Light Bender, oh. uh, and Light Bender is actually pretty straightforward in concept. It's a couple of mirrors which will be mounted on uh, a mast about ten, uh, sorry, about twenty meters high. Uh, and remember, no wind on the moon, so you don't have to make this particularly uh, wind resistant. Yeah. Uh, 20-metre high mast, it's 65 feet or thereabouts in the old measure, Um, and putting large reflectors on this mast, uh, two of them, around about 10 metres across. These are basically 10-metre mirrors, 33 feet in diameter. Uh, And then the trick is uh, to use these two mirrors uh, with robotic control so that they will actually point a beam of sunlight where you want it. 10 yeah. diameter beam of sunlight. Uh, and where do you want it? Well, you want it on the solar panels, uh, which are on the equipment that you're using, maybe even small solar panels that uh, that astronauts might carry with them uh, to get local power. Um, the real innovative positive, this is a kind of not new technology. And actually, I think you and I might have talked before about a large mirror, which is on top of a mountain in southern Norway. We did. Yeah. That Bay's uh particular village, I can't remember the name of the village, but they get sunlight in their town square in the middle Blue of winter. winter. So that they the SADS uh, syndrome, um is that what it's called? The uh yeah, 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 the seasonal t- seasonal something deficit.
0: <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah. That's winter, a, winter blues for another term, winter, I think they're blues, called. That's right. mm-hmm. and, and and
3: so that cheers people up, which is a great idea. Yeah, I uh, love it. So it this doesn't season, hurt anything. That, yes, that's right. This is a development of that, um, but on the moon. And you need two mirrors because you're looking at a very low uh, elevation, uh, You know, so that even at the top of the tower, the sun is right down on the horizon. So you, you have, have one mirror that picks up the sunlight, sends it to the second one, which does the beaming uh, to the uh, place where you
0: want it, under autonomous control. That's the it trick. Sounds, it sounds very much like the way you see something through a telescope.
3: Uh, yeah actually there's there's there is um uh, a, a well-known piece of astronomical equipment it's 19th century equipment uh which uses exactly the same principle it's called a uh, heliostat and the two the the word tells you what it does helio is the sun stat means stationary mm. uh, and so it gives you a stationary image of the sun it's again it's a two mirror system uh, and uh, heliostats uh, have been used uh Quite often, uh, well, for solar observations, obviously, uh, if you're observing the sun, uh, one way of doing it is to have a horizontal telescope which is fed by this two-mirror system, or you can make it vertical. That's another way of doing it, put the telescope in a deep hole in the ground. So you've got something that um, is, the telescope itself is stationary and the image of the sun is fed to it by this two-mirror system. So it's very, very similar to that. And I think UBIT is not so much the mirror layout as the robotic um, uh, AI that goes into controlling it and sending the beam where you want it rather than where you don't want it. Yeah. So that would be like a
0: um a guidance system.
2: Yeah, that's
3: right. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, with a heliostar, it's basically it. You know, it started off in the 19th century just as, as clockwork motors. Uh, you wind it up, uh, and away it goes, and it just takes mm. away. And because, of course, you're only following the motion of the sun across the sky, which is yeah.
0: Well, they, they can do that with solar arrays on Earth. If you want uh, yes, to spend the extra money, you can yeah. you can set them up so they you get maximum exposure yep. through the through the day because the panels turn in yep. unison with the sun, yep. and or with the you know movement of the Earth, and and you so, you you keep a, a direct connection between the solar panels and the light from the sun, and voila, you get maximum benefit from those solar panels. So this is. Sort of the same thing, except you're doing it with the light rather than yes. with the solar panels. Yeah,
3: I, I uh, you know, I have to say, um, when I thought about Artemis back in the day um, when it was first being proposed, I kind of assumed that they would do that. What you just said, have track- yeah. tracking solar panels, plonk them on top of uh, either a crater rim or a nearby mountain, because there's uh, this thing called an extension cord. I mean, feed an extension cord down to where you want it. Hang well, on, no, that's that's too easy. Let's
0: find a harder way of doing it.
3: But it, but doing that with the extension cord, you kind of, you know, it's not just a like a ten amp cable that you're using. <laughs> would be serious power stuff, and you've yeah. got to You've basically got to uh, move it around, uh, you know, as as you need it. And and I guess the great thing about this idea, the Maxar's uh, light bender idea, is that you just aim it wherever you want it. Um, the trick is to put your light tower in the right place but of course if you're clever you have it on wheels uh, and uh, with maybe a, a lunar rover or something to, to to cart it around to wherever you want it actually the illustration that I've got of this thing it doesn't have wheels uh in fact the basic the base looks a lot like the base of one of the old Apollo uh, lunar modules the, the bases that are still sitting there on the moon set mm-hmm. anyway Max are a a, a well-known uh space uh, company, uh, based, I think, pretty sure in the USA, uh, mm. contracted to NASA for the Artemis project to provide beams
0: of sunlight for their solar panels. Yeah, they've uh, worked with NASA before, haven't they? They've, yes. um, with robotic arms and things like that. I think that's correct. Yes, indeed. Yeah.
3: They, um, they built the robotic arm, which is currently on Perseverance, oh. uh, the lunar rover sitting on Martian, sorry, the Martian rover sitting on the surface of Mars. Uh, with its little helicopter, which, by the way, fell silent for I think two months. I don't know whether you saw that. Oh, no, I didn't. I think they've re-established contact with it. I'm um, followed up on that story. Yeah, it was, it was a a union strike.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> the autonomous helicopters union. Mm.
0: Now, uh, with with this reflecting the sun onto the panels situation on the moon, are they going to lose much energy in the process?
3: Um, there's always a loss when you have a reflection. Uh, it's, uh, you know, if you do things properly, though, it's it's maybe one or two percent, uh, maybe even less. Um, yeah. and if, in, in fact, that's why uh, with uh, large telescope mirrors like the one, for example, on the Anglo-Australian telescope, which I was most cl- closely connected with, uh, that mirror has a, it's a large block of not glass. It's a material called cervix, which is a sort of glass ceramic. Which has zero expansion coefficient, so it doesn't change its shape with temperature. Uh, that has a thin layer of aluminium on the front, which is the reflecting surface. Uh, if I remember rightly, when it's a freshly deposited layer of aluminium, its reflectivity in the visible wavelength, uh, wave band is about 95%. Uh, but over time, that aluminium degrades, partly because it reacts with oxygen In the Earth's atmosphere to form aluminium oxide, which is not as transparent as you might want it to be, so the reflectivity drops. That won't happen on the Moon, uh, so you can probably have you know, 95%, maybe a bit more reflectivity. So there will be a a slight loss of the two reflecting surfaces, but it won't be much.
0: Yeah, I would imagine that the quality of equipment, particularly the solar panels that they uh, put up there, would be far superior to most of the domestic stuff that we use.
3: Yeah, um, it's probably state of the art, which uh, um, uh, I guess ours are. The one on my roof is probably not state of the art, although it's brand new. But you know, um, it's it's a production line thing rather than a research uh, thing. So
0: yeah, uh, it's doing all right. Well, it's producing power as we speak. Yes, I, I'm just wondering. And we none of us will be around to see it, but I just wonder what it's going to be like a hundred years from now on the moon, what you know, what the activity yeah. will be. And they'll probably have a big, big community up there by then.
3: Yeah. with lots of defunct light banders that don't work
1: in.
0: Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It'll be, you know, I, I, I suppose we can speculate and probably get a very accurate idea of what it will be like, but um, yes, uh, it's certainly. Sorry. It's fascinating. fascinating. Yeah. No, it's going to be fascinating, I think, uh, because it is going to be the stepping stone to what uh, traveling beyond the moon to other parts of the solar system.
3: The aim is to have continuous habitation there. Um, mm. I don't think the aim is colonization. At least I hope not, uh, because uh, this is where we belong. But uh, but yeah, uh, basically the uh, the idea of having a permanent presence on the moon, which is great. It's a bit like you know, the step that was taken in 2000 to put a permanent presence in space with the International Space Station, which has been extraordinarily successful.
0: Indeed. All right. Well, uh, as we get closer and closer to uh, sending people back to the moon, there'll be lots more exciting stories to tell, so we'll keep an eye on it for you. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Roger,
1: your here also. Space Nuts.
0: Now, Fred, to a story that has gained a lot of momentum recently, and that is the expansion of the universe. Uh, we get a lot of questions about it. We get a lot of people who are confused about certain aspects of it, and uh, rightly so. It's, it's uh, indeed a mystery in many ways. But now there are claims that the expansion of the universe slowed after the Big Bang which sort of is counter to what we think is happening now, which is the uh, acceleration of the expansion of the universe. So what what are we talking about here? Well, something a little bit different from that, in fact. Uh, okay. We're
3: talking about our perception of the, ah. the ticking of time as we look back. Let me just stop for a minute, though, and say that you're absolutely right. The expansion of the universe did slow down after the Big Bang uh, because we had this period... Uh, that we call inflation, uh, which we think started something like ten to the minus thirty-three uh, seconds um, after the Big Bang occurred, uh, and um, that period of infl- of inflation lasted about the same length of time, some you know a gazillionth of a second. But the universe expanded by a factor of about ten to the power fifty or something like that in that in that brief instant. So yeah. the expansion period was slow, sorry the inflation period was slowed, was followed by a slowdown and i think it's fair to say that physicists do try and understand why this all happened but i think the jury's still out on the reason why we had inflation and why it, why it slowed down afterwards um, so you're you're right that the expansion did slow down dramatically in fact uh, and is and is now accelerating um so we think the uh, you know the reason why the acceleration's only kicked in in the last 5 billion years or so is because uh, the over the gradual expansion earlier separated galaxies, so their gravity wasn't; um, they weren't feeling the gravitational pull to the same extent as they were, and and the dark energy has managed to overcome the gravitational attraction of everything in the universe, if I can put it that way. Yeah. And so we now have an expansion, but what we're talking about today is something a little bit different, and it's um, it is our view from our vantage point 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang, our view backwards uh, uh, through the history of the universe, which of course we can do because of the finite speed of light and radio radiation. And the expectation is um, because the universe has expanded, that expands, uh, well, light waves, we know for a start, which is why we have redshifts. Uh, the longer um, a beam of light will travel through an expanding universe the more its wavelength is stretched. Uh, and so, for example, the flash of the Big Bang, which we can still see, uh, which 13.8 billion years ago was brilliant white light, is yeah. now microwave radiation because the wavelength, well, the waves have been stretched. But a, a consequence of that is that if you look back uh, from our vantage point, not only will you see stretched stretched wavelengths, you'll see stretched time, if I can put it that way. So that if you think of a clock uh, ticking uh, back in the day, maybe you know 10 billion years ago, uh, we when we look back at that, if we could see it ticking, the ticking would be much slower because of the fact that the universe has expanded in the intervening time. So we should be able to look back in time and see uh, time dilation. And that has been done uh, over a number of years uh, by something to do, and this is not quite the story we've got today, which I'll get to in a minute. (laughs) Be patient, be patient. Oh, man. uh, Oh, you are very patient. You'd have to be to talk to me. Uh, The the most uh, perhaps well-known example of this is uh, what we call supernova light curves, so when a star explodes, and there are different mechanisms for doing this, but let's just talk generically, mm. uh, what you get is a, the star explodes in a supernova. You get a, a, an, an upturn of the amount of light, you see the, the light increase in intensity, and then it gradually fades away uh, over time that the light falls off. So you've, it, And th- that's what we call the supernova light curve. It goes up steeply and falls away slowly, And we know kind of how long that fall off lasts because we can see supernovae in the relatively near universe. And it turns out that when you look back, say five billion years, that light curve is stretched. Um, So the the increase in brightness uh, followed by its slowdown takes longer when you look at things in the distant universe than it does in the nearby universe. And that's because our view of the time is showing it slowed down.
0: Mm. Um, you've suddenly got blurry. I have, haven't I? <laughs> have I? Because I moved something. I'll see if I got can... oh, there. <laughs> it is. You're I just had to move my microphone because it was getting in my
3: face. Because I'm looking back in time, you'd suddenly yeah. got blurrier than you were. Anyway, the bottom line is that with supernova, you can see this time dilation effect. So uh, scientists know that it happens. Um, it's predicted by relativity and all the rest of it. Yeah, but uh, well, the reason why this story is in the news now is that uh, Grant Lewis, a colleague and friend from the University of Sydney, and his colleagues uh, have observed a kind of ticking clock in distant quasars. Uh, now, I have looked at the. I've got actually got the abstract for the paper here. The paper, their paper is called "The Detection of the Cosmological Time Dilation of High Redshift Quasars." Mm. Quasars a long way back in time. Um, uh, but the abstract doesn't give any clues about what the, the clock tick is that they've used. Um, I think what they've done is probably looked at, they've looked in multiple wave bands. So I think they've looked at phenomena that might have delays uh, in their different wave bands. Uh, and it's that delay that they've counted as the tick of the quasar clock. What they're seeing though is from our vantage point, in 2023 looking backwards about 10 billion years so these quasars are you know the universe is only a couple of billion years old three billion years old at that time yeah right. more than that anyway um, what they see is they are the ticking of the quasar if I can put it that way is five times slower than what it would be today that's mm. the bottom line and so it's this time dilation effect which is observed um It is observed, and uh, they are essentially uh, matching exactly what you would expect at these distances. Uh, Let me just read the first sentence of the abstract, which I hope explains it better than I've done. A fundamental prediction of relativistic cosmologies, in other words, histories of the universe, is that owing to the expansion of space, observations of the distant cosmos should be time dilated and appear to run slower than events in the local universe. That's the bottom line. And they found was okay. five times slower. It's a fantastic observation. I will read the paper. Uh, the article itself is it's published in Nature Astronomy. Uh, but um, So I might find out a bit more about what they've done. It's possible I might even run into Gar- Garain in a meeting I'm going to tomorrow so I can ask him face to face.
0: Yeah. I, I recall a, a question coming in this week that uh, kind of talks about that, and I'm just wondering if I could squeeze it in. Oh, yeah. uh, because it, it does talk about uh, the, the issue of time in relation to a black hole. And I, I don't know if I can play this because I didn't actually load it okay. properly. But uh, I'll give it a crack. This comes from Carrick. So let's see if we can get it um, sorted
1: out. Hey there, Space Nuts Podcast. This is Carrick from New Zealand. I had a little bit of a, a question in relation to um, a thought that I've been having about the movie Interstellar. Obviously, there's a point in time when they're close to one of the the Black Hole Gigantuan, I believe, and whoever's on the planet, their time is moving much slower than their colleague who is up in space, and he ages much quicker. Uh, the thing that's been baffling me, however, is the fact that even though time is moving faster uh, for the team that's on the planet, they still stay the same age. However, uh, their colleague up in space... Uh, obviously gets much older Uh, i know that time is obviously uh, something that not created by people but they have we've made it equivalent with numbers uh, to make it comprehensible for us as a human Uh, but i don't understand how the people up in the spacecraft um, obviously their bodies would age at the same time regardless of where they are um, or as my thinking completely out of the plot Thanks very much for that, guys. Hope you have a lovely rest of your day, and uh, thanks for the podcast. I love listening to it on my journeys. Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you, Carrick. Uh, Have you seen the movie Interstellar, Fred? Yeah. um, Yeah. So you know the part where they've parked it outside the effect of Gargantua, the black hole, but then the planet that they're going to is, is within that effect. So for every hour you're on the planet, seven years passes on the spaceship. Carrick is having trouble absorbing that. He doesn't understand why that would be and if it's a you know a real potential situation.
3: So the real the reality of it is, yeah, I think that's fair enough to to, to say that. Um but for so and this is true of what we've just been talking about as well, the time dilation effect yeah. uh, with the expansion. It's a similar phenomenon. Uh to the to the participants at these two places, one on the planet, one in the spacecraft, their their time just Passes at the normal at the same speed. What yeah. What's different is your perception from one to the other, um, and uh, you know it's it, that that's 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 the difference. Um, it, because to, to each of them, they'll age at the same rate, uh, but they they relatively relative one to the other, they uh, they age at different different times. I don't know whether that explains it. Yes. So
0: th- and, and that is because of the gravitational effect of the black hole. Y- yeah, that's right. That's um, that's it's wa- it's warping time basically. Yes,
3: that's right. Gravitational time dilation. Exactly hmm. that. Uh and we we know that happens. We know um you know in fact you can measure that effect on Earth just with the gravitational uh potential of the earth. You can fly very accurate clocks on spacecraft uh which are in orbit, yeah, four four hundred kilometres away, uh, and they experience time at a different rate from what we do. But to anybody on the spacecraft, the time is ticking at the normal rate. It's just exactly between
0: the two. Yeah, yeah, it's the same as the speed of light factor. You know, as you get close to the speed of light, that it's is it time dilation there as well? Is yeah. that what it is? You do, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, Carrick, uh as portrayed in that film, yeah, it could happen that way. Uh Could. Uh, I think they did a lot of you know there was a lot of creativity in that process, but uh, certainly, yes. yeah, um, maybe not seven years per hour, but uh, yeah, no. there would be it would be an effect for sure.
3: I, uh, I, I I sort of saw that as a kind of comedy movie. Did uh, you? Yeah. Well, all the you know all the uh, physics that we know and love is twisted into to make a
0: bit of a joke of it, really. Yeah, <laughs> or just you know, never as I say, never let the truth get in the way of good story. Yeah. You know my favourite part of that that mo- that movie? I don't know. The sound the soundtrack. Oh, I it- loved yeah. the soundtrack. Is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'd watch it again just to listen to the soundtrack because it just it fits in so perfectly with what you're watching, and that's, that's the probably secret probably of the soundtrack. It, yeah. It yeah, I've watched it about four times. A, I love it. Mm. Good laugh. All right, thanks, Carrick, and uh, yes, um, we are perceiving time differently as a consequence of whatever Fred was talking about. Uh, this is this is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems
2: and team with a go. Space Nuts.
0: Okay, uh, Fred. While we're talking questions, let's uh, tackle a few. And um, a, a regular contributor to our uh, question segment, although we haven't uh, run one of Buddy's questions for a while. And and these also relate to what we were just talking about with uh, our perception of time. Uh, Buddy's got an interesting one as well.
1: Hey guys, buddy in Oregon again. Um, I, I've been struggling with something. Does a is there a time shift inside a galaxy as you get away from the center of the galaxy? Is is time going to be speeding up? So like if we were further out in the loop of the galaxy. Would time actually be moving faster than if we were on a planet in towards the center of the galaxy? Um, And if that was true, when things are rotating away from us, it has a redshift, right? Well, when things are rotating away from us, would there be a time shift also? Um, Hope that makes sense. Uh, Thanks, guys. I'm a huge fan. Keep up the good work. Thank you, buddy. Uh, Yeah, it, it...
0: I, I suppose Buddy's question is an example of how very confusing this situation is. But, yeah. Yeah, okay, where we are compared to, let's say, another civilization on a similar planet closer to the center of our galaxy, is there a time difference or yes. a difference in the perception of time as we've That's been right. discussing? It's exactly, it's the dis, this difference in the perception of time. So that there will be, uh, because
3: galaxies are growing you know, it's got enormous gravity, 400 billion stars. Uh, its gravitational potential is not the same as a, a single star or a single planet, but it's still there. And so to an observer sitting out in the suburbs like we are, if we could see, if we could observe uh, things going on in a planet nearer to the galactic center, exactly as you've said, uh, they would appear to be slower uh, because of gravitational time dilation mm. um, so once again it's the relative the relative difference between the two it's that's why well, it's called relativity it's all about uh, you know you, you're looking from one place to another and seeing the relative motion of one or the relative time ticking so um somebody's right uh it, it, it would be but it doesn't but to the person on the planet near the center of the galaxy time will be just ticking away at the same rate as it is to, to us they might look out and uh, see all these people on planet Earth moving around frantically uh, because they see, you know, their time to their perception of our time is is speeded up effectively.
0: It would be like looking at an ant nest after you've walked across it and they're all freaking out.
3: Yeah, they would. That's right. Especially those bull ants that you've got in your. Oh, yes. Well,
0: we've got some nasties out here, haven't we? Yeah, I remember them. Yeah. Um, reminds me of uh, when I was a kid and I was at a scout camp and uh, on the Sunday the family was allowed to visit and my sister and uh, mum and dad uh, came along and uh, I don't know if you've uh, ever heard of those big jumping ants that we have in the bush. They're about, you know, one and a half inches long. They're big buggers. Well, she stood on one of their nests and they swarmed her like she was screaming yeah. in terror and pain because they bit her. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was horrific. But, uh, yeah, we got some yeah nasty snakes, nasty spiders. We've got nasty ants here as well. But, um, uh, yeah, uh, back to Buddy's question, the, um, the, the observation of time would be the same to us as individuals in our presence, but looking at, and, you know, if we had a, um, a Looney Tunes telescope and were able to look at another planet and watch the people if they were in closer in in our galaxy closer to the center we'd be seeing them in slower motion but looking out they would see us sped up like a yeah silly old black and white film and uh or an ant's nest or an ant's nest <laughs> it's a weird it's a weird concept Fred it just freaks that me, out. Is, yeah. freaks me yeah. out very
3: old yeah and, and I don't I'm not surprised it freaks bodies, because it freaks me out uh mm. What keeps me sane in this is the equations, which
0: when you look at them, you know, they tell you, yeah, this is what happened. Act of good old mathematics. It always always has the answer. It's rock solid. Thank you, buddy. Uh, Now, uh, not dissimilar to that, but a more basic question from Colin. Hello,
3: Andrew and Fred. This is Colin from Adelaide, South Australia. I've always wondered how you can tell the difference between, say, something one million light years away and something 5 billion light years away. In last week's episode, Professor Fred mentioned this is done by measuring redshift. Can you please explain what redshift is to me, please? Enjoy the show. Keep up the good work.
0: Thank you, Colin. Uh, Pretty simple question. You did actually explain a bit about redshift um, uh, earlier in the show, but maybe we can sort of broaden that a bit.
3: Yeah, um, I, and I think it's it's something worth talking about a little bit because um, oft it, it kind of gets confused with something called the Doppler effect, uh, yeah. which I guess we're all familiar with because we hear it in sound all the time. The, the fact that you know something making a noise coming towards you and it's usually a siren or something like that um, sounds higher pitched when it's coming towards you than it does when it's leaving you. Yeah, uh, and the same thing happens with light. Uh, so that's how we measure the velocities of stars, in particular, and planets. Anything that's giving out light, uh, you can see h- how its light has uh, its wavelength of its light has moved uh, relative to our movement. And so, uh, in fact, I spent a large part of my career doing this for stars. Well, uh, something called RAVE, the Radial Velocity Experiment. Hmm. Uh, where we measured uh, half a million stars and their velocities by this Doppler effect, as as a as stars move towards you or away from you, their light is shifted slightly to the red or blue end of the spectrum. Uh, redshift is a little bit different um, because it, it it's it's technically not the Doppler effect. The redshift is caused, as as I mentioned last week, by the fact that as uh, radiation travels through the universe, if you're traveling for a long time through an expanding universe, then the light, the radiation waves themselves expand. And so you get this shift uh, from uh, whatever color light it was when it was emitted, whether it's uh, infrared light, radio waves, or optical visible light, uh, then it, it's uh, the longer it moves through an expanding universe, the more its wavelength is increased. And it's by precisely measuring that increase that we, we can um, actually determine how far away something is. Uh, because uh, w- what you're saying is, uh, in fact, it's more of a, a look back time rather than how far away it is. You're saying that when the light left this object, its frequency was something we know, but now its frequency has dropped or its wavelength has increased, the two are equivalent. And by measuring that, that tells you how long that light's been traveling. That's the the bottom line. It's an exact measure of how long the light has been traveling. Hmm. Uh, and that's the effect of the redshift. So that's how we can, uh, you know, something a million light years away uh, would certainly feel the effect of the expansion of the universe. You'd see a redshift because of that. Uh, something a few billion light years away is a much bigger redshift and, um, and once again, you can measure it precisely, so you can get the difference between
0: the two. How, though, do you know what the frequency was at well, the it, time that the yeah. light was released from the object? Because uh, of
3: our understanding of the way atoms work. Ah, um, so uh, mathematics. Uh, it, well, yes, it is really. Um, we 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 know that, for example, if you excite a hydrogen atom, it will emit light of a particular color in fact several colors but the mo- the, the, the most common one is is a a, a light which gives you a, a a particular red color which we call hydrogen alpha uh, and that y- you know the mechanism of the the the, we- uh, the, the, um, the atomic the behavior of the atom, to, to emit that light, the atom always behaves in the same way and emits light of a certain frequency or wavelength. And it and it doesn't matter when in the universe it does that; it always emits light of that frequency. Okay. So you know, even something back in the Mister the first stars when they started emitting light, the hydrogen light that they emitted would have the same frequency as an atom of hydrogen doing the same thing now. Mm. that's your standard that's the frequency standard
0: okay very good all right there you go Colin easily explained (laughs) I hope so nice to hear from you too Uh, one more thing before we wrap it up Fred and this is not a question Uh, this is something that's close to your heart you you like to play the guitar and write songs and sing don't you yes do yeah yeah so does Martin
2: are you ready for this Oh, let's go. Oh, boy. Here we go. Hello, Space Nuts. Martin Berman-Gorvine here, writer extraordinaire in many genres, wanting to know what you think of this song about the search for alien life. In it. You thought that you'd never know. Back when I was UFO, that Drake equation so slow, and now it's UAPs. You trade your soul for a wow. If I would tell you just how to reach FTL right now, if only I just sneeze. At that waterhole, you thought you'd reach your goal. To hear me, you'd sell your soul. Why don't you listen, baby? Hey, you just got tech. And this is crazy, but here's my redshift. I'm out here, maybe. It's hard to find me so many stars, but here's my redshift. I'm out here, maybe. Hey, carbon's coming. This is so crazy, but here's my redshift. I'm out here, maybe. And all the setties, they try to chase me, but here's my redshift. I'm out here, maybe eat my dust, Enrico Fermi.
0: <laughs> oh, dear. oh, my! Yeah. That was so clever.
3: Um, when he, when he said uh, writer extraordinaire in many genres, you didn't
0: expect that. <laughs> I didn't expect it. When I was going through the questions for this week, I just you know I, I generally just click play to listen to them so that I. Yeah. Know what's going on. And I just sort of sat back and went, wow. Um, I do we, like, we've got to play it. Yeah, we've got to play it. I love the sentiment, Martin.
3: Uh, I'm out here, maybe. Um, yeah. <laughs> because that's bottom line, really. Yes, indeed. Maybe maybe yeah. not, but maybe. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, well,
0: terrific. UAPs, yeah. U-Crows, everything's in that. It's great. <laughs> not the first one to send a song in. And um, Paul is way overdue to write us another one way overdue thank you martin that was that was wonderful don't give up your day job uh fred that brings us that <laughs> think, brings us to i think people tell us that as well <laughs> they do they do i know uh, dear. um that's the end of the show fred thank you so much oh, it's a pleasure always good to participate in space nuts uh while the going's good Yes, indeed. Um, and, and thanks to everyone who's contributed. We've still got a bunch of questions to get through, but please keep sending them in to us because we love to hear from you. And if you've got something that's gnawing at your brain, uh, I'm for, I'm sure Fred can figure it out. Whatever it is that's gnawing at you, that is not the answer. But uh, send us the questions anyway via our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Spacenuts.io is the other URL. And you can click on the AMA tab up the top where you can send us text or audio questions. Or on the right-hand side of the homepage, send us your voice message and uh, tell us who you are and where you're from and uh, ask your question and we'll chuck it into the mix unless it's already been answered. Sometimes we get the same questions many, many times, but um, yes, uh, we'll do our best for you. And while you're on the website, have a look around, um, see about becoming a a patron and thanks to our patrons. I haven't said thank you to you for a while, but uh, we appreciate your support. Uh, don't forget to visit the Space Nuts shop while you're on our uh, website. Fred, thanks again. We'll talk to you again real soon. Uh, It sounds good, and I'll look forward to it, as always. Thanks, Fred. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, thanks to Hugh in the studio for being Hugh in the studio. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, it is goodbye. We'll catch you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. See you.
3: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
0: Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at bytes.com.
3: This has been another quality podcast production from bytes.com.